Good morning, everybody. I want to talk to you a little bit about, we're going to kind of intro this by looking at a couple of Christmas songs. One of the great things about the Christmas season is we get to hear all these wonderful songs, like All I Want for Christmas is You, Santa Baby, Blue Christmas, now, the, the great hymns of our faith. And we sing, we sing, we've got so many wonderful songs that have been written throughout history, so many of them that have gone on from a thousand years ago, we have hardly any songs. The church sang, but they disappeared, and that comes. They come and go. We have new ones. And we're going to talk today about a couple of old ones and then one new one that we sing all the time in the holidays, one of the songs we sing throughout the year. Our Christian hymns for Christmas are some of the richest theological songs we have. And I think one reason is, is because... We have a preference for emotion. That goes for, that goes for Christians too. <clears throat> if we look back in our hymn books, the songs from the great age of English hymnody, which is the 1700s, we only do a very few of those songs. Most of those songs, we don't even know what they sound like. And I'm talking about even some of our more seasoned members. I could throw some songs out there and say, do you know this Isaac Watts hymn? And very few people would go... No, I don't know that. He wrote hundreds of hymns, and we sing a few. Um, he's got some great ones. But there's something about the fact that we made them, that our Christmas songs we sing seasonally, is we don't get tired of them. Somehow they've stuck, and they've landed in the culture. So we sing Hark the Herald Angels Sing. That's one of my favorite songs. Man, it's rich song theologically. I challenge you to find one more theologically rich in all of the hymnal than Hark the Herald Angels Sing. It's one of the richest, and we're going to look at the words of that. So what's great on some of these Christmas songs is we get to sing, and those things are planted in us sometimes, but we sometimes sing right over them because of the joy of singing Christmas songs or the season, and we hear, uh, we're shopping, and we hear, we're like, oh, I love Christmas songs. But let's look at some of the words. Um, Hark the Herald Angels Sing. And I pulled this hymn book out because I thought it was going to, do me right and have the fourth verse in there, but it skipped it, so I'm going to have to look that up on my phone. We're going to read through some of these lines, and then I'm going to come back and we're going to look at some scripture, because what these hymns are telling us is the story of redemption. Christmas, and Jerry has been speaking on the incarnation for the last few weeks, the incarnation, the infleshing, that Christ became man. He added on man. Christ did not get rid of anything. There was no subtraction involved, no multiplication or division. He added on man, and he was, is the perfect man. He's still man. In heaven, and the throne of God, sits Christ, the God-man. He didn't put man back aside when he went back into heaven. He is now and forever man and God. Always God. He put nothing away as God. So that's the incarnation. Jerry's covered that a lot. We'll talk a little bit about it. But what the Christmas season is, and what happens when Christ comes is the plan of redemption continues. It started at the beginning, started before time began, and continues even now. But it is the plan of redemption. And we're going to look at the words. Let me find, Hark the Herald Angels Sing. I'm going to make sure I have all the lyrics here. We're used to singing four verse, three verses. But here, when we sing it, we sing four verses, because I like it that way. And I love the fourth verse. Um, and actually, what we sing of the fourth verse is something that was done by George Whitfield, who took two 
Hark the Herald Angels Sing was written by Charles Wesley. And it, the original words, we would actually, some of the original words, you would hear them and you think, what? I don't even know what that word is. They were old English, old with an E. And the, um, George Whitfield changed the words a bit, to, and he was a much more poetic lyricist. Charles Wesley was very good, and Whitfield was even better. So, so he fine-tuned it, and he took half of the fourth verse and half of the fifth verse and combined them into what we sing as a fourth verse. Hark the herald angels sing. So there's something about, we have, the choir's going to sing uh, today a song that's based off of um, uh, the angels singing. We sang that last week. And I used to love to sing that as a kid because you can just kind of scream that while you're singing it. Now it's hard to get people to sing. <clears throat> but the angels sang. Something about what happens when Jesus comes in the manger at Bethlehem brought out all the angels. Now they had a task to do. The angels serve God. But they also sang in amazement. They sang at the glory. And what were they singing out? They were singing about redemption and God and his greatness and his goodness and the amazing things they were witnessing. And, and we learn in the New Testament, we are told that angels long to look into these things. The story of redemption is, is so interesting to them. One, they don't need redemption. They can't have redemption. The fallen angels have no redemption. The angels that did not fall are sinless. They have no need of a redeemer, but they worship God perfectly. They understand him in ways that we cannot. Yet we, as a redeemed people, understand God, should understand God in a way that angels don't. And and the Bible says angels long to understand. They are praising God. They're bursting out in song. They're telling the story. They're proclaiming. They're sharing the good news. And so we look, hark the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king, peace on earth and mercy mild. God and sinners reconciled. This is the reconciliation, redemption. Joyful all you nations rise, join the triumph of the skies, calling out with the angelic, so with these angels, proclaim Christ is born in Bethlehem. That's, that's the introductory verse of this song. The second one, Christ by highest heaven adored. We're getting into the incarnation now. Christ by highest heaven adored. Christ the everlasting Lord. Christ did not just come to be at Christmas. He always was, and he was always Lord, everlasting, and he was always adored. And it says in that second line, late in time, behold him come. The writer of this is saying, it was a long time before this everlasting Lord came as the man, as the Redeemer. Though he always was the Redeemer, now he has come as the Redeemer. It seems like it took a really long time. This is offspring of the virgin's womb. Christ was born of Mary. Mary was a virgin. That was prophesied. That happened. Veiled in flesh the Godhead see. We talk about the incarnation. This is maybe, I always think this, I'll share it. I probably shouldn't. But I think if you go to the Mexican food restaurant and you get chili con carne, what does that mean? right? Meat. Incarnation, that's the same Latin root. Flesh. Us, what we're made of. God took that on. That's the incarnation. That's where that infleshing that we're seeing that. Veiled in flesh. So flesh doesn't show the glory of God in our flesh. It shows the image of God. We, not just our flesh, but as complete people, 
with our spirit, our soul. But flesh hides. There's something about God taking on flesh that in this hymn it says, veiled in flesh. We see as a person. You see a baby or you see Christ when he, before he went to the cross, see him on the cross. There was nothing about him that made him say like, well, that's obviously the God man. You can see it on his face. No. There was nothing about him that made us, that Isaiah says, there was nothing that would, that would show that. So he is veiled in flesh. He's taken on man, which is not God, but he is the God-man at both at the same time. Hail the incarnate deity, the God-flesh. So those two lines, veiled in flesh, the Godhead, see, hail the incarnate deity. How many times have we sang those? Seeing those, when you sing them, think, what a glorious thing. This is God in the flesh. Emmanuel, God with us. Pleased as man with men to dwell. It pleased Christ to do this. And we're going to talk about this here in a minute in more detail. But this is not something, a task that God, that God the Father said, Jesus, you're going to have to do this. And he's like, oh, I've got to put off my glory. No, he veiled the glory in, in flesh, but he was pleased to do it. He wanted to do this, and he did. He was pleased as a man to dwell with men, with humanity. Jesus, our Emmanuel, God with us. Third verse, hail the heaven, well, yeah, we'll do the third verse. Hail the heaven-born Prince of Peace, heaven-born. Christ always was. We say, we're going to sing here, and I'll, I'll read the lyrics of this. We say, begotten, in that Christ is the Son of God, but Christ always has been, always will be. He did not, he did not begin at the manger. And Jerry has talked about that a lot in the last few weeks. Hail the heaven-born Prince of Peace. Hail the Son of Righteousness. If you see our lyrics, you don't have to send an email and say, you spelt Son wrong. Son of Righteousness, S-U-N, in your hymnal, and on our slides, hopefully, refers to Malachi, one of the prophecies in Malachi that says, the Son of Righteousness will rise like the sun rising with healing in His wings. So hail the Son of Righteousness. So is Christ the Son? Yes, S-O-N. But Christ is also of one of the many, many terms used to refer to Christ. is the Son of Righteousness, S-U-N of Righteousness. Light and life, like the sun, he brings. Risen with healing in his wings. When he rises like the sun, there is healing. Mild he lays his glory by. Again, we talk about what's happening in the incarnation. He's laying aside. His glory is veiled, but he never got rid of it. He never became less than he was before. Mild he lays his glory by, born that man no more may die, born to raise the sons of earth, born to give them second birth. Hark the herald angels sing. We finish with those two lines. And then let me read you the verse that we add. I love this. Well, I'll, I'll read the fourth and fifth verses. We, we take the first part of each one and we sing that as our fourth verse. Come, desire of nations, come. Fix in us thy humble home. Rise, the woman's conquering seed, bruise in us the serpent's head. So we say, come, desire of nations, come. This season, you may observe this. You're free to do this. You're not bound to do this. But some people observe that Advent season, you hear the word Advent, you see it. And um, Advent is a long-time Christian tradition of waiting, waiting on the Lord to come. And it's, it's a, there's a duality to it in that it recalls the waiting of God's people waiting for their Messiah, and it also recalls our waiting 
We have, God is with us, yet He's not here with us in person. He's in heaven. His Spirit is with us. God is with us. But we, re- we long for His return when He will make all things right and when um, sin and death will be destroyed. We long. So every Advent season, we sing songs like, Come Thou Long Expected Jesus. O come, O come, Emmanuel. And one of the lines from O Come, O Come, Emmanuel is the same line. Come, desire of nations, come. Fix in us thy humble home. Rise the woman's conquering seed, bruise in us the serpent's head. That recalls Genesis 3. We'll look at that a little bit more. When, when Adam and Eve have sinned, they have fallen, and God comes into the garden, they go to hide, they're scared, but God goes to them. And he pronounces, he said, for what you've done, this is what will happen. But he also makes this promise. It's called the Proto-Evangelion. The first gospel is in chapter 3 of Genesis. And he says, well, let's, let me turn there. We'll look at it again in a second. But I want to, you're, you're familiar with this. We've talked about it numerous times in here. It's in verse 15 now. I will put enmity between you and the woman. He's talking to the snake. The Lord is. And between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head. That is, her offspring, this woman that you tempted, that you lied to, that listened to you, her offspring will bruise your head. And you shall bruise his heel. So you... Snake, Satan, you will bruise her offspring's heel. Well, who is her offspring? It's Christ. So when we sing, rise the woman's conquering seed, bruise in us the serpent's head. We have sin in our lives. When we sing that, we say, we rejoice that Christ has come to conquer the serpent. And that we recognize in us as fallen creatures that some of that crushing happens to us because of our sin. We feel it. Uh, sometimes we get slapped down. Now, now this is the original lyrics. I'll go ahead and read the second half of this verse. Now display thy saving power, ruined nature, now restore. Now in mystic union join thine to ours and ours to thine. That we abide in Christ, that we are one in Christ. These are, like I said, this is a deep theological song. Last verse, and we, do, we sing these four lines. Adam's likeness, Lord, efface. Stamp thine image in its place. So we, Adam, is, we are like Adam. Right? Adam is the first man, Adam and Eve. And we all carry, Adam was our head as a, as a humanity. He was the first one. And he kind of set the, the standard, which was, we fell. And so that likeness that we have of Adam is fallen. And in this song we say, Adam's likeness, Lord, efface. Efface is one of those words. It's kind of fading out, but it means erase. Wipe that away. Stamp thine image, thine, Lord, stamp your image in its place. Second Adam from above, reinstate us in thy love. And Christ is called the second Adam. We'll see some verses here in a minute that say that. Let us thee, though lost, regain thee the life, the inner man, Owe to all thyself in part, formed in each believing heart. Then there's a new song that we sing, and I'm going to sing some of these, I'll say some of these quickly because I've got to get to some other stuff. But we sing this song, we sing it throughout the year, Come Behold the Wondrous Mystery. This song was written 
About 10 years ago, I heard it at a conference and thought, wow, that is a good song. It's a good Christmas song. It's also a good song for all, for all the time. You know, we, we sing a lot of songs that we could call Easter songs throughout the year. We sing about the cross. That's what we do. We find it a little harder to sing Christmas songs all year long, but this is one we can. Come behold the wondrous mystery. You've heard this one. In the dawning of the king. He, the theme of heaven's praises, the angels, robed in frail humanity, the incarnation. In our longing, in our darkness, we wait. Now the light of life has come, the Son of righteousness. He comes to shine life. Look to Christ, who condescended. He came down, took on flesh to ransom us. Come behold the wondrous mystery. He, the perfect Son of man, In his living, in his suffering, never trace nor stain of sin. He never sinned, though he lived a life. He was the perfect son of man. He was totally man and totally God. The big mistake that's made throughout in church history, one of the the first things that brought about the creeds, some of the early creeds, was the idea that Christ just wasn't really totally man, that he just put on man body. It was just a look. It wasn't real. And one reason is that is they just go, well, he can't be like us. He's God. He is like us in every way, except that he lived a sinless life. He did not carry that fallen nature from Adam because he was born of the Holy Spirit. In his living, in his suffering, never traced nor stain of sin. See the true and better Adam. Here's that theme again. Christ is the true and better Adam. Come to save the hell-bound man. He has now become the head of the race of the redeemed people, the human race, redeemed race. Christ, the great and sure fulfillment of the law, in him we stand. Come behold the wondrous mystery, Christ the Lord upon the tree. In the stead of ruined sinners hangs the lamb in victory. See the price of our redemption. See the Father's plan unfold. And we'll come back to that in a second. Bringing many sons to glory, grace unmeasured, love untold. Come behold the wondrous mystery, slain by death, the God of life. But no grave could e'er restrain him. Praise the Lord, he is alive. What a foretaste of deliverance. How unwavering our hope. Christ in power resurrected as we will be when he comes. I love that song. But we're now going to focus, we're going to hone in a little bit on this idea. See the price of our redemption. See the Father's plan unfold. So when we come to the Christmas time and we think of nativities and we think of Bethlehem and we think of dry, dusty streets of Judea, we think of the Roman Empire, we think of the Herods and their corruption, and we think, well, how did it all come to be like this? Well, this gives us a lot of information how it came to be like that, but how did it come to be like that? It was the plan of God. It was God's plan. Redemption was God's plan from the beginning. Pull up there, David. Uh, I'm going to read these because I brought a different version. I want to read what I put up on the screen. Uh, Ephesians, we we go to the book of Ephesians, we start, we're going to read a bit. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, by which he made us accepted 
in the Beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace, which he made to abound toward us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of the times he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth in him. What do you see a lot in that? The fullness of time. His will, the mystery of his will. That this was God's plan. It was his plan. Redemption is entirely of God. The Bible is not an account of man seeking God. There are a few instances in here where we have an individual person. How do I find God? I'm looking. But the Bible is quite the opposite. It's the history of God dealing with man, not man seeking God. Other religions tell you how to reach God. The Bible is telling you how God is reaching you, proclaiming that he loves and he has mercy and he sends his son to save a people that he planned from before the beginning of time. He had a plan to redeem a people for Christ, through Christ. The Bible is primarily a history book sprinkled with some theology, a lot of theology, but it's not a systematic theology. It is a history. We read it in history as it happens. When we jump into it, we've got to remember that we're in a place in God's redemption story. We don't just pick pieces out. That's a dangerous way to handle your Bible. The Bible tells us what God has done in order to reconcile us who are fallen to himself. God is willing to receive us and goes out of his way to seek us. John 3.16 For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Why did God do all this? Because he loved us. It was God's doing. These things are not all easy to understand. Sometimes we get the wrong view that God is looking down on man, has condemned man because of his sin, and Jesus comes up and says, but God, I'll do this, and we'll make it right. Don't, don't get rid of him yet. I will. It's not how it works. This was God's plan. This is not Jesus saying, trying to placate God. It's not Jesus appealing to God to change his mind. This was God's plan. This is God the Father. God takes the initiative. 2 Corinthians 2, 5, verse 19. That is, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Paul is saying here that God, the Father, was in Christ. This is God's plan. God's plan to reconcile the world to himself. God's plan not to impute their trespasses to them, to impute our sins to us. That was God's plan. How did, through Christ, it was God's plan. God sent Christ. God took the initiative. Redemption is entirely of God. Redemption, salvation, is all of grace. Genesis 3, we go back to Genesis 3. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord God called to Adam and said to him, Where are you? So he said, I heard your voice in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you that you should not eat? Then the man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me of the tree, and I ate. And the Lord God said to the woman, 
What is it this you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. Move forward there. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, you are cursed more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. And again to 15. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. Notice New King James capitalizes, tries to always capitalize deity. So seed is capitalized in that. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Notice what happens in Genesis 3. Man falls, listens to Satan. Both Adam and Eve disobey. God has made a covenant with them and said, Tend to the garden. I will bless you. Don't eat of this tree. And they said, We're not going to keep that covenant, Lord. Or, you know, you. We're going to be like, we'll make ourselves lords, like, The snake said, we're not going to keep that covenant. So what could the Lord have done then? He said they die. But the Lord had a plan from before the foundation of the world, we learn in the New Testament, that he was going to redeem these people. He continued in that plan, in his grace. They were frightened. They were alarmed. They wanted to hide from God. God sought them out. God called after them, calling them to come back. God's, God listened to their dumb excuses and blame. Adam blaming his wife for the thing he chose to do. Eve blaming the snake for the thing she chose to do and listening to snakes. But God listened to them. It's like when we have, I shouldn't make this, but it is com- comparable when we as parents have children or grandchildren who say silly things about why they did something wrong. And we lovingly listen to them. And sometimes correct them, hopefully lovingly. God called after them. He sought them out. His grace. This is the whole case of the Bible. Gracious action on the part of God who did not turn his back on the world because of sin. It doesn't mean he lets it all go under the rug. He doesn't. And that, the history is there too. He punishes sin. Though we are undeserving of his love and mercy and his compassion... He speaks to us in terms of grace and love, like a father to his children. We have no claim upon the love of God. We can't say, God, you owe me some forgiveness. You owe me some understanding. You made me this way. He didn't make us this way. We chose to sin, but we carry that nature. We have no claim upon his love. We forfeited that claim in our father Adam and our head of our human race, forfeited that claim when he said, I will not be a part of this covenant with you, Lord. I will go my own way. But salvation is grace, and that is unmerited favor. If we merited it, it wouldn't be grace. If we deserved it, it wouldn't be grace. But God loves us. That's his grace, even though we don't deserve it. So, redemption is entirely of God. Salvation is all of grace. Three, it was all planned before the foundation of the world. I've said this several times, but I'll go ahead and expound a little bit on it. It's not an afterthought. The Bible is not chapter 1 and 2 and part of chapter 3 of Genesis, and then somewhere God stops and says, okay, we've got to do something else here. We've got to change course. Uh, Jesus, Holy Spirit, let's get together and figure out what we're going to do here. That's not what happens in between those lines. Sometime before any of this happens, the Trinity... God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit have a plan for this 
world and these people and this universe that will be created and that will fall and that will be redeemed. And they all take a part of it. It's not an afterthought. It was conceived before the world was made. And it's mysterious. You know, I can say that all day long. I can, and we can read about it. We can, we can proclaim it. And we often, we often forget that we need to say, yeah, but this is really hard to understand. This is really mysterious. The word mystery is used in the Bible a bunch. Paul loves to use it. He uses it for different things. He says, this is the mystery of the, how God will bring Israel. This is a mystery as to how redemption will happen. This is a mystery that marriage represents Christ in the church. When you see that mystery, then what you need to think is, well, it doesn't matter if I understand it now because God says it's a mystery. No, that's not right. God gives us truth. He wants us to know it. He wants us to apply it. He wants us to live in it. But we also have to recognize that some of these things are beyond our comprehension. So we do our best and we trust in God's word. And that's what Paul is saying. He goes, I'm going to give you a lot. Read Romans. That's Paul pouring it out. And even in Romans, he says, this is a mystery. But he says it's a glorious mystery, and he tries to explain why. And it is a mystery to us how God can be outside of time, how God is God and is sovereign over all things, and how God can allow things that we would say, well, if you didn't want sin, God, just don't allow sin. He could, and we have faith and trust and hope that that's what eternity will be like, that sin will be defeated. Paul calls it a mystery. We are bound by time. Ephesians 1.4, you've got it up there. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. That was God's plan. Before the foundation of the world, according to Paul, God chose us in him, Christ, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. Are we holy now? If Christ is our Savior, if we trust in Him, if we are Christians, yes. Before that, we're not. Yet that's God's plan, that we be. And so He sends Christ. People often think God is having to modify His plan. That's not, not in Scripture. Before anything was made, the plan, the idea of redemption, was already in the mind of God. And, as I said, it is a Trinitarian plan. It takes all three persons of the Godhead the three persons of the Trinity, they work out the plan. They divide the work. They, do diff- they have different roles. The Father is the originator of the plan. The Son is the executor of the plan. The Holy Spirit applies what the Son has done to us, what has achieved in the power of the Holy Spirit for what Christ has done. Without the Holy Spirit, there would be no personal application and meaning of that for us. All three are working. Christ is also made the heir of all things, things, Hebrews 1-2. Has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, that's God the Father, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds. Part of this plan of redemption, we like to personalize it because we think, well, that's my main need is redemption. But the plan is bigger than that. The plan was is that God would make this world, he would make these people and give them to Christ. In fact, he would one day redeem everything and it would all be given to Christ. And who is Christ? He created. He was the, he's the creator. He holds all things together. John Piper, and I, I should have written this poem because it was a very short poem. I should have made a copy of it. But he has this poem of when Christ was on the cross, he held this little grape. Colossians tells us that in Christ all things 
have their being and they are held together. So this image is that Christ holds all things together. If Christ does not desire that things be, they aren't. And on the cross, while Christ is being beaten and hanging there, what is he doing? He's still holding all things together. He could have squeezed that grape. And those people would have been gone. He'd still be God. But he loved that grape, us. He died for us. He rose for us. Christ has made the heir of all things. Everything in the world is given to him. John 17, 2. Christ here is praying to his Father. As you have given him authority over all flesh, that is, you've given me, as Christ is saying to the Lord, you to the Father, you've given Christ authority over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as you, Father, have given him. Christ has authority given by the Father. True authority. God the Father hands the world to the Son and gives him power over all of it. Um, Psalm 8, 4 through 8. There's another Old Testament. I look at this. He says, What is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you visit him? For you have made him a little lower than the angels, and you have crowned him with glory and honor. You have made him to have dominion over the works of your hands, and you have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, even the beasts of the field, the birds of the air and the fish of the sea that pass through the path of the seas. This psalm we read it, and it is a messianic psalm. It's pointing to the Messiah, who is Christ. We can look at this psalm and say, well, he's talking about man. He is talking about man. He's talking about the God-man. Now, Christ is the second Adam, the head of humanity. This psalm, because you read this psalm, and sometimes we're talking about man, who's a little lower than the angels, has some authority, has been given authority. God gave man authority in the garden. He didn't take it away, but he said it'd be a challenge now. He said, you can go and, and work in this world, make it like this garden. But then when the curse comes, he said, well, you're still commanded to do that, but it's going to be a lot harder. But this is talking about Christ, who is our head, and we are to be and will be like him. <clears throat> but he has authority. God the Father made the Son the head and representative of the new humanity. Romans five twelve through 14. Therefore, just as though one man's sin, through one man, sin entered the world, and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men, because all sinned. For unto, until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed where there is no law. Okay. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who had not sinned, according to the likeness of the transgression of Adam. Stop there. The likeness of the transgression of Adam. That's us. We are in the image, like we read in those hymns, we are the image of Adam in our sinfulness. The likeness of the transgression of Adam, who is a type of him who is to come. A type, that is, that Adam represented Christ who was to come. Not the image of his sinfulness, but that he was the head of humanity. Adam failed in his covenant, and is there anyone who could keep it? Adam could have, but he didn't. But now there's no one who could keep that covenant. So what does God do? He provides a covenant keeper. He provides Christ. God sends Christ. That was always the plan. He was sent into the world. It said, we saw, we saw that, the likeness of the transgression of Adam. Christ came in the likeness of sinful flesh. And that all human flesh is in the likeness of Adam. Therefore, it's a likeness of sinful flesh. Yet Christ was not sinful. 1 Corinthians 
15.22. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. We have another example of first and second Adam. In this covenant that God the Father gave God the Son, so there's a, another covenant language here, and that God the Father has given God the Son a people whom he would raise on the last day. John 17, 1, 1 and 2. We've already read one of these verses. We'll come back to it. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes. This is verse 1. This is ESV. To heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. So Christ gives eternal life to a certain set of people. To a certain set of things. And what is that? It's what the Father has given Christ. That is part of the plan of redemption in that the God had a plan to redeem us, but that God also had a plan to give Christ everything and a people. Hebrews 2.13, now we can go to that one. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, here am I and the children whom God has given me. Christ recognized that. That's a hard thing for us to recognize. Once again, there's a mystery here. Christ is the head of his people, the new humanity, the redeemed. He is the second Adam. The plan of redemption is also a definite plan. It's not incidental. There's nothing contingent about it. It's perfect plan. Perfect from before the foundation of the world. All of history happened when God appointed it to happen. That's, that's another mystery. But we see that in the Old Testament. We have prophecies that talk of weeks, of years, and we... We get down and we take a time and we say, well, Abraham was given a prophecy at this time and it came to pass at this time it happened. And then it happened here. That could be Abraham. That could be Moses. God told Moses, or I'm sorry, God told uh, Abraham that his people would be in Egypt for 400 years. And then some time passed and everything seemed, well, I wouldn't say hunky-dory, but they weren't in Egypt and then they were. And then 400 years passed. And then what happened? God sent Moses right on schedule. God has a perfect plan of history, and it's definite. From Moses, they go to David, they go to the captivity, they go to Christ. When the fullness of time has come, we see that verse in Galatians 4. We see it in several places, but go to Galatians 4. But when the fullness of the time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. When the fullness of time had come. That's a great way of saying it, but that's like when the exact date and time that God had planned and all the events that he had planned happened, happened, and everything was ready to be the next happening, that's when he did it. He didn't wait. He didn't like, okay, it seems like things will work now. This is a dusty enough place. Carpenter is a good career. I'm going to send Jesus in. No. He had a plan. And it was fulfilled. He started this plan in Genesis 3, as we said in the song earlier. Why did he wait so long? That's what a lot of the songs say. A lot of these things. Why, Lord? It's what a lot of the Psalms say. Why do you wait? I want to read you this quote. This is from Martin Lloyd-Jones on that topic. I thought it was really good. He says, 
People have often asked, if God gave that promise way back there in Eden, why did he wait so long before he sent his son? It's an idle question to ask, but God has his great purpose in it all. It is very easy to suggest many reasons why God did not send his son until the exact moment when he did send him. It seems to me to be more and more clear that he did this in order that he might first show men and women their utter helplessness. The law had to be given in order that they might see that they could not keep it. An opportunity had to be given to Greek philosophy to do everything that it could do. An opportunity had to be given to Roman law and Roman ideas of justice and of government. Everything that men and, men and women could think of for redeeming themselves and their world had already been tried and had failed before God sent his son. God knew this from the beginning. I think that's a good, good reflection on that. I think you may be right there. <clears throat> so, the plan of redemption is a perfect plan down to the smallest detail. Uh, go to Romans 11.25. This is a very short little section. For I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery. He's talking again about uh, Israel. How will they be redeemed? Lest you should be wise in your own opinion that blindness in part has happened to Israel unless the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. So in this section of Romans, we won't get into it, but Paul is making the case that there is hope for the Jews, but he says there's a fullness of the Gentiles that has to come in. Well, what does that mean? That means there are a number of Gentiles, that means not Jews, who will be saved, that will come in, that God is giving to the Son. And that number is definite, that number is set, and he goes on to say there is a number of Israel. We have in the, and our pastor spoke on this a few weeks back, in Revelation we have a set numbers that, are, that come. <clears throat> we, we could say, well, maybe those are just suggestive. I don't think they are. He has a set plan And it is definite. And he is redeeming a new people, a new humanity, through Christ their head. It's absolute certainty that this will come to pass. We can trust in it. The purpose of God applies to us and all things. The universe will be redeemed. It groans, waiting. And finally, this plan of redemption always centers centers on the Lord Jesus Christ. So, we talk about put Christ back in Christmas. This this was mentioned the other day in something, I'm not sure if you heard it. Give you something to think about. When you see the word Xmas, right, you may find that super offensive because you think, well, they're just marking Christ out. Xmas actually is historically a Christian term because the X is the cross. Christ, in you read old literatures, even old Bible manuscripts, and Christ is sometimes with an X. They saw that and they went, that's Christ, the cross. The, the, so some of the oldest versions of the word Xmas were totally understood to mean Christmas. It glorified the Christ part by saying this is a special part of it. That aside, Christmas and all of life should be all about Christ. And as Christians, we recognize that if we're to be saved, we have to be saved in Christ. There's no other plan of salvation. There's no other way of reconciliation, of redemption. The Old Testament and the New Testament are all concerned with Christ. In the Old Testament, it's preparation, it's promise, it's prophecy. In the New Testament, it's the fulfillment. Every shadow, every type, Adam, is made the anti-type. It's Christ. It's a preparation. The Old Testament, the New Testament is a fulfillment. The substance now, instead of the shadows. 
the fulfillment of everything that God had indicated he would be. Christ is essential. He is the essential person for us. Christianity is Christ himself. So if you ask someone, or if you ask yourself, am I a Christian? Well, there's several ways to evaluate that. One you could say is, well, did I say or do a certain thing? That's not the way to do it. The way to do it is to say, is Christ essential to me? Is Christ my everything? Do I trust Christ? Do I treasure Christ? Is he essential? Is he everything? If you look at this plan of redemption, what is the essential thing about it? It is Jesus Christ. And as Christians, Jesus Christ is the essential thing. He is everything. He is the touchstone of our faith. It is our relationship with Christ. It's not something we did. It's not something we said. It's not something we filled out. It's something we are, which is we are faithful believers in Christ. We trust in him. That's the touchstone of our faith. Do you see Christ as essential as your only hope? And uh, if you do, you can trust in Christ and, and glorify him like the angels because we get to see redemption firsthand. We are redeemed in him. Let's pray. We'll go. Father God, we love you. We thank you for your son. Lord, help us to live lives day by day, hour by hour, minute by minute, recognizing the essential need that we have of a Savior and that gift you have given us in your grace and love, in your eternal plan. Lord, you, you save us through Jesus Christ, the faith that you awaken in us through your spirit, that you keep us through your spirit, through the victory that Christ has won. Lord, help us to ever be grateful, to ever to be soothed and calmed. Lord, to be convicted when we act like that doesn't matter. When we sin, Lord, we know that you have forgiven us. Lord, we ask, Lord, that you do that, because you said you would, and you have in Christ. Lord, be with us now as we go to worship. Help us to sing. Help us to hear uh, your word. Help us to glorify you. Help us to love one another as we go out. We pray for those in our, this room this morning who, who are hurting, uh, for those who um, have lost. Lord, let us be comforted in that you, Lord, have lost, but you have gained a people for Christ. And, Lord, we have that hope that all things will be made new and restored. In Jesus' name, amen.